The first lawsuit under Florida's Parental Bill of Rights law has been filed in Palm Beach County. The target? Pro-LGBTQ flags flying in a middle school classroom. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. The controversial law has given parents more of a say over what happens in the classroom and has opened the door for lawsuits when they feel those rights have been violated. Also on the South Florida Roundup, we speak to a candidate in Florida's 27th Congressional District, which includes parts of Central and South Miami-Dade County. It's considered one of the most competitive in the country. And finally, Fantasy Fest is back in Key West for the first time since 2019. And we don't know whether to close our eyes or take off our clothes and join in. All that and more on the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. One of the most competitive congressional races in the country is playing out right here in our backyard. Florida's 27th Congressional District covers broad parts of Miami-Dade County, stretching from Miami's Little Havana down to coastal areas of South Dade. The district has flipped between Republicans and Democrats over the past few election cycles. But the redistricting that took place this year redrew the lines slightly in favor of Republicans. Battling it out for the seat is incumbent Republican Congresswoman Maria Elvira Salazar, a former Spanish-language TV journalist, and Democratic State Senator Annette Tadeo. I sat down with Senator Tadeo this week at her campaign office in South Miami, and we're about to listen to that interview. I will say before we hear it that we contacted Congresswoman Salazar's campaign many times to interview her as well, but they did not respond to us. And with that, let's listen to the interview with Democratic State Senator Annette Tadeo, who's running for Congress in Florida's 27th Congressional District. What are the biggest issues at stake in this election? And how are you positioned to take them on? Well, the biggest issues at stake in this election, that's top three, I would say, is affordability. We are in one of the most expensive places in the country to live now. And, of course, to top that off, we have an insurance crisis and a sea level rise crisis and all of the things that bring it to be more, even more expensive and and the second one would be a woman's right to choose. And the third one is, um, you know, just gun violence and the fact that our kids are going to school and they are concerned for their safety and, in my opinion, living in terrorism. On, on the affordability crisis, um, I actually um, think that my opponent, Maria Elvira, um, is really more interested in having the problem than in actually coming up with solutions because every opportunity that she's had to help people that need the most help in our community, she votes against it. Um, she even sometimes, some of those votes, she calls them socialism, like she did the infrastructure bill, uh, which we desperately need here because we are ground zero for sea level rise and climate change and obviously our transportation <laughs> Anybody who goes to work every day deals with it, and it is it is a major problem that needs a lot of investment. Um, she then turned around and sent a letter uh, for that so-called socialism money that she said the reason why she voted no, and now she's going around campaigning on the fact that that money did come, and it is the kind of uh, false and, and fake narrative that our community does not deserve. And we've had enough of that. 
polls show a trend here in South Florida where Latinos as a group have taken a pretty sharp turn towards conservatives and Republicans. And that's especially accelerated the last few years with the inflation levels that we've seen. How are you positioning yourself to addressing that shift that, that, you know, all the public polling shows that that shift is real. How are you positioning yourself to overcome that? I've actually been doing that. And I'm actually one of the ones that have been telling Democrats, guys, this is happening. So I have been warning and I am, um, you know, I'm sorry that, that everything that I've warned about um, is actually happening. But the way that I have positioned myself and the reason why you know, even our internal tracking is showing that we are actually ahead in this race is because of of what I've been doing, which is I have been serving now for five years, first Latino Democrat in the Florida Senate and got reelected. I represent a district that voted for Trump by six points. And the way to 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 do what I've done is, um, first of all, to be a public servant and represent everyone. Um, not just show up come election time, but all the time. And I've been doing that in all communities, not just the Hispanic community, but all communities. But also in the Hispanic community, they know me as an independent voice, an independent thinker, willing to stand up, even to the point that I've, I've spoken uh, against uh, my, you know, whoever in my own party or any decision that I think is, has not uh, been appropriate. Even, for example, when the FARC were taken off the terrorist list, there were, there were a lot of people that were not happy with me that I was actually um, not in favor of that. And, and, and that was uh, the Biden administration that did that? That was the Biden administration, exactly. So that is the kind of leadership that this district deserve. And frankly that it has had historically, whether it was Claude Pepper, Dante Fassell, Ileana Rosalettinen, uh, or Donna Shalala. We always had high-level people that even if you don't agree with them on everything, you knew that they were always there pushing for our community. And I've done that. And and that's a stark difference between me and my opponent uh, because, for example, she's really big on saying that she is for protecting victims of communism. But she has been really, really quiet about a plane full of Venezuelans, for example. Um, and, um, and, and it just really, again, I am, I've always been there for the community, whether it's the Cuban diaspora or any other uh, people. And that's why I was able to get things done in Tallahassee and get the respect, not just of Democrats, but of Republicans, which is why they named me, <laughs> the Florida Senate Democrats named me the whip, because I was so effective. And speaking about your time in the Florida Senate, you've been there since a special election in 2017. What are some of the biggest accomplishments you could point to in your tenure in the Florida legislature where the Democrats are a minority? Absolutely. It's actually really, really difficult uh, to get things done when you're in the minority and when when they your seat is always a targeted seat. And so... I, um, I mean, you know, from the minute I got there, one of the things that I wanted to deal with was insurance. And um, it's very difficult to do that when um, the insurance companies actually have 
have get their way <laughs> and we're paying for it. We've all seen our homeowners insurance uh, go through the roof throughout the years. Um, but one of the things that I, uh, my first bill was actually dealing with flood insurance, which is a federal program, but a lot of people in our community do not, they're not required, do not have flood insurance. So I wanted to make sure that they knew that because I remember the experience I had with my parents with Hurricane Andrew. Their house was completely flooded. And then the insurance companies that that you buy the insurance from for the wind say, oh, it was a flood problem. We don't have to pay for it. And flood has a maximum. So I really wanted to make sure that people had the coverage from flood to cover them should that happen. And and this this was my first bill. But there's so many other things I did, uh, so many other bills I passed, including some that usually uh, people don't deal with, which which is with uh, people with disabilities. And um, I passed a couple of bills that dealt with that. And uh, to the point that I, I was legislator of the year for um, Autism Speaks. And um, some of my bills are, have now become uh, a, a model nationwide. Other states are starting to follow that. Some of your campaign ads have turned a hallmark of South Florida politics on its head in in a way, because what we typically see, and this happens virtually every cycle, is Republicans saying that their Democratic opponents are socialists in some kind of way. And some of your ads are saying that your Republican opponent, Congresswoman Salazar, that she's a socialist. I'm, I'm curious, can you just explain that accusation? I absolutely can, and I will tell you that I am tired of, I. first of all, I'm a business owner for 30 years. I still meet a payroll every two weeks, um, and, uh, and, and I know that the definition to many in our community of socialism is very different from the definition in the in the dictionary, um, and that Republicans have successfully used our, our fear of um, uh, totalitarian regimes and government control over our lives um, as, a, as a wedge. And, but they're the ones, including my opponent, that are doing these things. They're the ones that are okay with the government telling you, especially women, what to do with their bodies uh, in what would be uh, one of the most difficult decisions in their lives and many times life-threatening. For the government and politicians to be making those decisions is completely unacceptable. Uh, But there are so many other things that they are trying to tell us what to do. So so it is absolutely not okay. And I'm calling the BS out <laughs> is what I'm doing. And I'm saying enough already. If you really want to come up with solutions and work together, then let's do that. But no more of the name calling. And if you're going to do that, I'm going to call you out because you're the one taking our freedoms away. And I'm going to say the number one most important issue uh, with that is our democracy. When I am running against an election denial, who's actually gone on Spanish radio and said that that 200,000 additional people who weren't even registered to vote voted in in Philadelphia. Give me a break. That is unacceptable from a congresswoman. That is not what we should have. And our community deserves better, especially 
especially since my opponent loves to stand up in front of Freedom Tower and talk about democracy in Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. You cannot bring about democracy in those areas if you're not willing to defend it here, and she has not. Just before we started recording, you showed me a photo that someone sent you of their ballot, and it had some interesting factoids on there. Can you, can you share a little bit about what you've been seeing as, as early voting has opened back up, as mail-in ballots have been going out and coming back? Yeah, it's really interesting. I am, I'm getting a lot of Republicans that are actually um, sending me pictures and people are posting uh, as well of their ballot. And it shows that they are voting, for example, in this one that I just got, it showed that they were voting for DeSantis um, and uh, and me. <laughs> so uh, it's 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 an interesting thing that we have seen in our tracking. Um, and again, the the calling things socialism, but then turning around and doing something else. The the fakeness and the lies are are coming through to even Republicans, and we're seeing a lot of support. But I think it also has to do because of my record and also obviously getting the support of so many Republicans that are well-known, like the former chairman of the Republican Party. I have won a lot of these people over because of my service and my uh, independence on so many issues and willing to stand up to everyone. And I think that is going to be the model uh, to win in Miami-Dade County uh, for Democrats that, that you know, people are going to be uh, realizing that we need more of this kinds of campaigns and the right candidates for our community. The, the district you're running for, District 27, is heavily Cuban-American. The most recent poll of Cuban-Americans by Florida International University just released shows that 68% of Cuban-Americans who responded to the poll do not believe the U.S. embargo on Cuba is working. But nevertheless, 63% still want the embargo to continue. So my question to you is, is the U.S. embargo on Cuba working? Look, um, I think that um, the community, what the community is saying is what I've been saying is, um, you know, that the, the Cuban regime can actually uh, lift the embargo as soon as they let out their political prisoners, as soon as they have free and fair elections, as soon as they allow political parties. That is in law in the United States. And so the minute they do that, it's, it's lifted. Um, and we are always for human rights and freedom, freedom of the press, although some of our politicians uh, <laughs> nowadays I question uh, because, uh, you know, they keep calling some of the people in the media the lamestream media or the fake news, but, um, which is dangerous, I, I believe, in a democracy to do that. But, um, but yes, I think that um, the, the community feels that way because we're seeing it. Look, just a couple of weeks ago, a rapper was arrested because he, song, he sang uh, Padre Vida and, and, and the kinds of things that, that sometimes are critical of the Cuban government, and they, they're put in jail. They're put in jail for putting a, a, a white sheet over their balcony. I, I, I think about that. This is a government that is still doing these things, that is still beating people up because they dare speak up. And um, we as Americans, I believe, uh, would never think that that's okay. And we, I will continue to fight 
for for people to to have freedom in Cuba. Or again, Nicaragua, the same thing's happening. They're putting priests in jail in Nicaragua, and um, so it's it's all over the. It's we we need to keep fighting for that. But I believe that I'm with my community when I say these things. So you were born in Colombia, um, and you have been sharply critical of the left-wing Colombian president, Gustavo Petro, since before he was elected earlier this year. And since taking office, he's began floating ideas that rub many in the U.S. the wrong way. And one of the most recent ones is floating the idea that maybe they should decriminalize, legalize cocaine, stop going after coca farmers and whatnot. If elected, how would you use the role as a U.S. congresswoman who was born in Colombia, to shape foreign policy towards Colombia, which has been an ally, a strong ally of the United States for so long. A very strong ally, and I have been an anti-Petro person since um, actually not just this election, but the previous election when he ran against uh, Duque and lost. Um, so I've, I, I mean, my record is clear, which is why it's really interesting. My opponent has now started uh, running ads, um, calling me a petrista and a terrorist sympathizer. It is, it is how low they will go and how desperate my opponent is, and clearly she's having trouble uh, with, <laughs> with uh, bringing some of those voters o- over to her side. Um, Having said that, I do think that uh, as a congresswoman, my voice and my experience and my understanding of the importance of Colombia uh, to the region and to the security of the United States is extremely important. Um, And I actually think that both Democratic and Republican administrations have ignored not, not not just Colombia, but have ignored the entire region. We see it as an asterisk. And um, and I think it's a, it's a national security issue when you start seeing so much investment in Latin America throughout Central Latin America of, of Russian investment and Chinese investment. And we uh, should, should not look at it as an asterisk. How will I go about it? My experience, I think, makes me uniquely qualified, but at the same time, I think that we need someone that is, um, that is always going to be thinking like I will be on, on the United States national security interests and economic interests as well, because of course, as things go wrong in Central and South America and the Caribbean, we see more people taking that very dangerous trek to the U.S. border with Mexico and creating all kinds of problems for the United States. That was an interview that took place this week at the campaign headquarters of State Senator Annette Tadeo, who's running for Congress in Florida's 27th Congressional District. And to repeat, we contacted Congresswoman Maria Elvira Salazar's office several times for an interview, but the campaign did not respond to us. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, the first lawsuit under Florida's so-called parental rights law has been filed in Palm Beach County. The target, pro-LGBTQ flags flying in a classroom. You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Rainbow-colored flags in a classroom are at the center of a recent lawsuit filed locally by parents. In 2021, Florida lawmakers passed a law called the Parental Bill of Rights. 
The controversial law opened the door for parents to sue school districts and school officials when they alleged that schools infringe on, quote, fundamental rights of a parent to direct the upbringing of their children. What's believed to be the first lawsuit filed based on this law has been filed in Palm Beach County. And the target is a middle school in Wellington where pro-LGBTQ flags are flying in a classroom. And we want to hear from our listeners on this one. You can reach us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. And you can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now to talk about this is Catherine Kokel, who covers education at the Palm Beach Post. Catherine, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Thanks so much for having me, Danny. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So to, to start off with, if you can just give us a little breakdown of what exactly this lawsuit is about and what are the legal arguments being used by the parent who's bringing it? Absolutely, I can. So this lawsuit was filed on October 12th here in Palm Beach County. Um, the man who has filed it is representing himself. He's a pro se complainant. Um, and so his lawsuit really got into uh, some of his concerns about this. Uh, what he is saying is that his son, who shares his Christian Orthodox beliefs, um, came home from school a couple of weeks ago, this is in mid-September, and said that his computer science teacher had put up two LGBTQ pride flags in the classroom. And so his argument here spans a lot. He actually cites a lot of different state statutes and federal um, federal protections, um, but he's asking that the court demand the school to investigate his claims that these flags should not be flown in class. He wants the school to require the teacher to remove the flags, declare that the flag and the teacher's decision to talk about homosexuality is illegal, stop the school board from uh, displaying the flags, and force the teacher and principal to issue a public apology. So there's there's a lot going on here. Right. Um, he wants he wants a lot. And the the parent says that when he learned of the flags, he filed a complaint with a school principal but that the principal dismissed that complaint. And then after that, the parent asked for his son to be removed from this computer science class. Um, wh where does that leave his son now? Sure. So the the computer science class was an elective class um, for this individual. He wants to be a computer programmer when he grows up. He's 12 years old. Um, and so when uh, his dad considered these flags and made the complaint. Um, he asked that his son be removed from the class and he's now in an elective art class. So he was given some options um, a home economics class or art and he he's, he's in an art class, but he's now been out of this computer science class for five weeks. Which I imagine the, the father is taking issue with because his son wants to be a programmer in the future. Yes, he's upset with this because he thinks it's negatively, he says it's, it's negatively impacting his son's education. That's correct. And what are people in the legal community saying about the fact that this lawsuit has been filed? And, and you know, I asked it because when the when this law was passed last year, there was a lot of speculation of how it will be used, what kind of lawsuits we might see. And then, you know, here we have one. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of conversation both in the legal community and to the you know, the attorneys who are talking to me about this, about the atmosphere. Um, this is one of the first lawsuits that most of the attorneys that I talk to have heard of that directly cites this law. Um, we know that these laws have been challenged in court on their on their basis. But this is uh, the first that uh, several attorneys that I talk to have heard of as far as citing it. But what they're saying and what, what my, my reporting shows is that we are in a new atmosphere where 
parents have always sued school districts. They've always schooled, um, excuse me, sued schools when they don't like something that's going on, whether it be curriculum, in the classroom, outside of the classroom, in sports. But under these new parental rights laws, um, they are kind of given a bigger platform to do this. And so when I'm talking to education attorneys um, and law professors, law scholars, they say that we are going to see a lot more of these. And maybe five or 10 years ago, a suit like this may have been kind of classified under freedom of speech uh, for the teacher or freedom to practice religion for uh, the, the parent and his son. But now it's also classified under these parental rights laws. And that is just a new legal territory. So it's it's um, it's it's certainly going to set set a precedent, whether or not it, it actually sets a legal precedent. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. And I, I want to go to the phones. We have a caller calling from Wellington, actually, where this lawsuit comes from. Uh, Wensley, thanks for calling the South Florida Roundup. You're on the line. Hi, how are you guys doing? Thanks for the opportunity. Um, Absolutely. I just want to say it's absolute hubris that these lawsuits are being filed. I mean, the rainbow, I'm sitting here in a parking lot looking at a building with all the colors of the rainbow, and it has nothing to do with LGBT. But the fact that we've gravitated to this spectrum where, you know, we're going after schools and teachers and libraries for books and things that are promoted. I have a six and a half and a three and a half year old. And I want them exposed to everything and let me as the parent at home make the final decision as to what they should gravitate to what my values are. And maybe we should file a lawsuit against rainbows not being flown in schools because it's a natural part of the colors that show up in the sky when the sun is shining and rain is falling. <laughs> are we going to go after that next? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the call, Wensley. Um, Ka- Catherine, um, back to you. Has there been any response from the Palm Beach County School District yet with in regards to this lawsuit? There's been back and forth between um, Mr. Deliu, who's the person who filed the lawsuit, and the local leadership at his son's school. But the district's uh, position is always that they don't comment on pending litigation. And this is obviously pending litigation. So they haven't made any public statements about this yet. Um, there is a hearing scheduled on Tuesday uh, for an injunction that he is seeking. So um, that would be our first opportunity to kind of get a sense from the the school's attorney whether how this is going to go. Right. And um, we have another call calling from Pompano Beach. Rigo, thank you for calling. You're on the line. Uh, yes. Hi. Thank you. Um, my personal opinion on this is that I think it's a, an absolute waste of time to uh go after a school district for uh, just displays on the classroom. Um, if anything, we should be focusing on the actual curriculum, bettering the curriculum for all students in the state, not just the personal opinions of uh, a few. Because, uh, you know, someone could go after someone's religious belief um, the same way that you could go after someone's belief on representing uh, different people in the community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the call, Rigo. I'm Danny Rivero. This is a South Florida Roundup on WLRN, and we're talking with Palm Beach Post education reporter Catherine Kokel about what's believed to be the first lawsuit filed under Florida's Parental Bill of Rights law, taking aim at pro-LGBTQ flags flying in a middle school classroom. You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. And you can tweet us at WLRN. Um, Catherine you know, this this lawsuit was filed under the Florida Parental Bill of Rights law, which was passed last year. Can you give us a little bit of the background about what 
that law actually changed when it comes to how parents can go about filing these kinds of lawsuits? Absolutely. And I do just want to point out too, um, currently in Palm Beach County, there is nothing that stipulates which flags are allowed to be flown in public school classrooms. So our state statutes require that every classroom has a United States flag. It also requires that every public school in Florida um, fly a U.S. flag and a Florida flag. But that's maybe one a misconception uh, that people have that there's nothing in district policy in Palm Beach County nor state statute that says these are the only flags that that can be flown in classrooms. But back to your original question, there are two laws at play here. The Parental Bill of Rights was the first of these laws. It was passed last year, 2021. And that law basically established the right for every parent in our state to direct the education and care of their child, as well as direct the upbringing and moral or religious training. And that's that's a lot. Obviously, that covers a lot. And that that is the law that Mr. Delio cites in this lawsuit. Um, because he says that his right to direct the moral and religious upbringing of his child is being impinged upon. Now, our legislators built on that law, the Parental Bill of Rights law, to create the Parental Rights and Education law. And that law passed this year. That was the law that critics dubbed the Don't Say Gay law because it limited classroom discussion and instruction on gender and sexuality in the grades K through three. Now, this was happening in middle school, so it doesn't really fall into that realm. But all of these things are now part of our state statute, and a judge is likely to consider um, this lawsuit under the context of both of those laws, especially because it's being brought by someone who's representing himself as opposed to someone who's being represented by a private attorney. So in our parental rights of education law, um, a parent or a student um, or anyone <laughs> um, involved in the public school system can bring an action against a school district for declaratory judgment um, that that they are violating these laws. So basically it opens the door and attorneys that I spoke with said that these laws embolden parents to sue, to specifically sue. There is a whole policy for how to bring a complaint in the Parental Bill of Rights law and, and Mr. Delio is doing that as well. But and, this and, is that was, and that was opening. kind of explicitly mm-hmm. one of the, the goals of this legislation, right? Is, is, is to embolden parents to raise their voices in the courtroom when they feel something is being violated. Absolutely. And it's something that um, people are seeing outside of education across the country. Um, There have been some abortion. There's been abortion legislation that has implemented this kind of it's dubbed vigilante enforcement mechanisms um, where anyone who suspects that a law is being broken can bring bring a lawsuit. Um, And again, that is not necessarily new. Parents have often sued school district um, school districts for things they don't like. But in our parental rights and education law, if a parent wins, um, they must be rewarded uh, reasonable attorney fees and court costs. So that's, you know, that's a, a big barrier to suing that may be removed in cases like these. Right. I want to go back to the phones. We have Sylvia calling from Miami. Sylvia, thanks for calling. You're on the line. Hey, um, I just wanted to clarify whether there wasn't another lawsuit filed a week or two ago in Miami-Dade, I was watching a board meeting and at the end of a series of students uh, complaining because the board did not honor uh, LGBTQ week, somebody came and said that he was suing the school district because of a book that uh, featured uh, the content that he opposed and that had been removed and then reinstated. So I thought there was something already uh, sued uh under that law in Miami-Dade. Maybe the person 
didn't go through with it. I think was uh, he was representing a group. Okay. Well, well, thank you, Sylvia, for that for that extra context. Um, this is all obviously pretty brand new, and it's kind of why I'm trying to couch it as it's what's happening in Palm Beach is believed to be likely the first, but I'm just being transparent on on this. Um, Catherine, I want to ask you about the the parent who filed the lawsuit. He's Frank Delio. He's representing himself. And he has a little bit of a checkered legal history when it comes to to practicing law, but not necessarily in the U.S. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the background on him? Yes, Mr. Delio was born in Romania and he uh, came to the United States. He practiced as an attorney in New Zealand. Um, and at the time, uh, I believe in 2017, um, was disciplined and and fined as well as suspended from practice for um, allegedly, uh, uh, excuse me, for uh, allegedly accusing a judge of being a racist in the courtroom. So there's, um, he is not a practicing attorney in the United States. Uh, he is seeking admission to the Florida bar. Um, that's what he told me, and, and that's in my reporting. So he has at least some training as an attorney uh, internationally, but is not a practicing attorney here. So he um, he is familiar with filing lawsuits. Right. Um, we have another caller, Igor, calling from West Kendall. Igor, thanks for calling. Hey, and thank you for taking my call. Absolutely. Um, I just yeah, I just wanted to quickly comment on uh, the fact that, you know, in the pursuit of higher education, um, no matter what we're studying, you know, we should strive to be interdisciplinary and intersectional. Uh, the more we're exposed to, the more we can learn about things. And um, I think the idea that uh, people being represented, you know, in the classroom, uh, the kind of um, drive to want to erase uh, the fact that these that any LGBTQ people exist in the world um, it's kind of like it, it's more blinding uh, to anyone trying to further their education than anything. Um, just kind of like uh, restrictive. Um, you understand me? It, it's uh, kind of contrarian to the education of anybody to, to restrict them from the knowledge that people exist and that um, they have all different sorts of beliefs. So, I mean, for for the parents who kind of want to... Uh, tunnel their child into any kind of uh, specific point of view, uh, mm -hmm. maybe might be their right, you know, inside the house. But um, when the child is exposed to outside society, I think it might just be detrimental to them when they come upon, you know, other people. Got it. Well, thank you for your call, Igor. Um, Catherine, yeah, I mean, speaking about the kind of opposing... Um, rights that are almost entangled in this in this lawsuit the, the the man who filed this lawsuit says his family's orthodox christian and that they believe that homosexuality is a sin and he calls the flags offensive in his lawsuit and an offense to brainwash his son um but to the to igor's call who, who just called there are many people who feel represented not in any religious way by that flag um when it when it when it comes to how lawyers and, and attorneys are looking at kind of these groups on the opposite side of the spectrum, does one side clearly have more rights than the other? Sorry if that's think, a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I appreciate the question and I appreciate uh, Igor's point of view on this. Um, 
One of the things that stuck out in my reporting is when I was talking to um, law professors and practicing education attorneys just about how far uh, freedom of religion goes. And one of the claims in this suit is that his religious rights are being denied to him and his freedom of, of religion is being denied to him on the basis of these flags. And attorneys were pretty skeptical of that when I talked to them about it because um, Bob Jarvis, who's an, uh, a law professor at Nova Southeastern, was explaining to me his rights to go to church are not being impinged upon by um, a, a teacher flying this flag. You know, he is he can tell his child and he can practice any religion that he'd like. And that's not really impacted by this flag. So there um, he was a little skeptical uh, when I talked to him about this, about whether a judge will see merit in that claim. Obviously, I can't say um, this is, is just yeah, a result right. of my reporting. Um, but I think it brings up a very good question that we're going to continue to see play out in the courts um, as as more lawsuits that cite these parental rights laws come through. Absolutely. And uh, I want to go back to the to the phones. We have Sam calling from West Palm Beach. Sam, thank you for calling the South Florida Roundup. You're on. OK, uh, I think that schools should be limited to reading, writing, written opinion. That's what we all grew when we were small. When I was small, we didn't we didn't espouse any particular straight pride or gay pride or anything else. Uh, and we, all attention is being given to gay pride. Why don't we have straight pride for, for, uh, flags? Maybe a student can put a straight straight pride flag on his desk. I mean, this should be you know, it's getting too far. And it's only one particular leaning. Uh, and I think that we sh- it should be limited to reading, writing, and arithmetic. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. We appreciate your call. Um, Catherine, um, you know, the, the caller, Sam, there calling from West Palm Beach, he's, a, he's espousing his, his, uh, his, his opinion on it, which seems to be aligned with the, with the parent in this suit. Um, you, you mentioned that there's a hearing coming up on, on Tuesday. What are you going to be looking out for in that hearing? I think I'll be interested to see um, how much breath the judge gives the suit. Anytime a pro se um, litigant is coming forward, a judge tends to try to be as broad as possible when considering their claims. That's usually because someone who's representing themselves isn't very familiar with the legal system. And so they may be bringing arguments, but maybe in the wrong way. Um, Obviously, this litigant is different because uh, he's been trained as an attorney and has practiced as an attorney elsewhere. Uh, But at the same time, I will be looking for whether the parental rights and education law comes up, although it's not the one that's cited in the suit. It is in our state statutes. And so um, I think that will give us a good idea of of how broadly this this suit will be discussed and and considered. Catherine Kokel covers education at the Palm Beach at the Palm Beach Post. I'm sorry, Uh, Catherine. Many thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, for the first time since 2019, Fantasy Fest is coming back to Key West. You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Key West is back to embracing this spooky season like it hasn't been able to in the past couple of years. After two years of cancellations and restrictions due to COVID-19, Fantasy Fest is back in full swing with tutus, glitter, body paint, and all. 
But all of the hype from locals and tourists about the festival being back isn't just about the parade floats and the wild costumes. The economic impact of Fantasy Fest in the Lower Keys is huge. It's also a fundraising event for local nonprofits, helping residents with housing and access to healthcare. Do you have a memory of Fantasy Fest you'd like to share? Or maybe you're there this year and you want to talk about it. You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. And you can tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now to talk about the return of Fantasy Fest is WLRN Florida Keys reporter Gwen Filosa and Fantasy Fest director Nadine Grossman-Orr. Gwen and Nadine, thanks for coming on. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having, having me. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. Nadine, let's start with you. Um, what are you most excited about, uh, you know, having the festival fully return after the past few years of, of absence? Gosh, I think I'm I'm most excited every year about the creativity. Um, the local community really brings it. They have embraced the theme this year, and the floats and the costumes have been fantastic. Um, you know, I just finished the parade script for our Bud Light Fantasy Fest parade that goes down the street tomorrow evening, and the creativity is amazingly impressive. Um, I just I get excited though. There's a, a high energy in town everywhere. The events have been so well attended. Headdress ball was last night, and it was fantastic. And uh, I'm excited for the masquerade march tonight. It's just a couple of hours away. It's uh, just getting all the my, all my ducks in a row. <laughs> <laughs> and Gwen, the the festival's been go ongoing for a week now. Tell us a little bit about what you've seen. You know, the crazy costumes and the people wearing them. Keep in mind, you know. Keep it PG. <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, it, this is an enormous event that is put on. I mean, there's so much going on. And the locals, though, have they always bring it. They really brought it this year at the zombie bike ride, which is what it sounds like. Uh, people just had amazing um, creativity. We had someone in an electric chair who was a <laughs> friend of mine who I didn't even recognize. It was so good. And um, the, the guys who dress up as the Amish come every, you had to be there. Uh, <laughs> Tutu Tuesday was a huge party. Hundreds of people were at this complex of bars. And um, I, a woman, uh, an artist here wore a, a shift dress made entirely of tutus. Uh, she always has to come in and make us feel lame and uh she looked great she looked great <laughs> i will say the 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 velmas and the shining twins that that's played out down here so it's got to yeah. stop <laughs> nadine this year's theme for fantasy fest is cult classics and cartoon chaos uh how did how did you land on that theme what's the, what's the backstory there you know it's a lot of fun i mean something that this festival has been around for 43 years and i think a big part of that and it the festival itself having a cult following is because we freshen it up every year with this theme we put out a call uh to our fans everyone on our social media and our e-news and our, our community and we ask them to submit theme ideas and then our board of directors uh fantasy fest is owned by a nonprofit board of directors we all get together and review all those themes and if we select uh, your theme that's been submitted, you actually win a place on our judges stand. So we call out to the community for those ideas. And then um, the board has to make the decision based on costuming. We always choose a theme that's going to lend itself to a lot of um, a really broad spectrum of ideas and you know creative costuming. And so that's 
that's how we got there. <laughs> nice. And Gwen, COVID-19 had a huge impact on tourism and the hospitality industry across the whole state. Um, what you know? What are you hearing from businesses about the return of Fantasy Fest right now um, after many years of not having it? Yeah, well, they had an abbreviated version last year. In 2021, um, Key West, like a lot of Florida, really bounced back. Um, it had like a record year in certain revenues and because um, other places were closed. I mean, right. couldn't really go anywhere else. But, um, but uh, you know, th this brings tens of thousands of people to town. I will say, I mean, uh, the hotels have some spare rooms and that that hasn't happened during a lot of fantasy fests they're doing good but they're doing okay but there are some uh spare rooms around town and so it's not a sellout crowd but uh it's still kind of early but uh it, pe people are you know close. happy Nadine, yeah, you have yeah no no there? it uh, i was gonna say it's pretty close when i was i've been calling around i know there are some guest houses and um some vacation rentals still available but um our bigger hotel groups we're forecasting and we're telling me that starting tonight, actually, uh, or starting last night, Thursday night, they were very solidly, you know, over 90% and 100% this weekend. So, yeah, and that makes sense because it's the end. It's the big show, big showcase over the weekend. But I mean, throughout the week there, yeah, there's some spare and uh, people, people are happy. People always do well on Duval. Um, uh, you know, there's some. Um, uh, people are excited. I don't know. The crowds seem a little thin last night on Duval, but again, Friday and Saturday, those are the big days where people Friday, make it. Friday night. Um, yes. Nadine, the, the festival also raises funds for many people in the community who are in need of help. Um, the coronation of the king and queen, for example, raises money for the AH Monroe, an organization providing housing and care for people living with HIV. And you actually won the Queen's crown in 2003, meaning that you raised the most the most cash for that cause. Um, how important is this, you know, fundraising part of the festival for you and how you, you look at it? Gosh, I mean, it's it's enormous. The, the, the history of the King and Queen campaign for H Monroe, they've raised over five million dollars um, in just over 30 years um, through this annual King and Queen campaign. And um, there are many other organizations that we support throughout the festival, our, our Mark Association, the Monroe Count, um, County Remarkable Citizens. Um, we collect Fantasy Fest beads and recycle them and they resell them uh, throughout the year. Uh, we've got um, breast cancer and of course the Florida Keys F, uh, SPCA. We raise funds for them, uh, Womankind, so many local nonprofits participate and host really clever creative events annually and you know this is part of their annual budget so um yeah it's not only a, a huge impact to all of the worker bees all of our frontline bartenders servers hospitality industry folks um, but these nonprofits really depend on the revenues that they can generate during fantasy fest as well and uh i want to ask a maybe a personal question for both of you but um what are you what are you all wearing <laughs> Nadine, Nadine, let's start with you. I feel like you might be better situated. Uh, you know, this evening I am just gonna go as sort of myself. Although I, I've got a very colorful wig and ensemble, I am uh, the director of chaos control this evening. I've got a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of things to get underway tonight, so my costume is pretty tame, but very sparkly and purple and glittery. <laughs> and Gwen, same question. Don't hate me. 
No, no, Nadine's going as the most exhausted person ever. She's done great <laughs> this year. I um I am I have a Clark Kent outfit because I always wait to the last minute and it does fit the theme even though it's super lame. <laughs> and th- this one is for both of you. Um but just looking back, you know, obviously there's such a long history with Fantasy Fest. Um is there a favorite memory that that you have? Nadine, I'll start with you. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, I think that um, I took on this festival as the director in 2017. The previous director had done it for 25 years. My first year um, is so memorable to me. We we put on Fantasy Fest right after a major hurricane, um, but um, I loved the theme, Time Travel Unravels, and the artist, Lady Outrageous, who did the poster. It's actually, you know, um, just it's a it's a wonderful memory and every time i need to channel some good fantasy fest energy i have got her her art and my poster here in my office and i love it <laughs> and mm-hmm. and and gwen for you um what's your what's your favorite fantasy fest memory <laughs> a few uh i was going to talk about me being on the winning disco inferno flow in years back but i just saw pictures our mayor terry johnston uh did it once again she always participates she went as tippy hedron in a blood-soaked um suit for out of hitchcock's the birds for the editor's ball that's the most impressive thing i've seen and i think she has a cigarette which it's probably fake <laughs> she did look good last night <laughs> oh my gosh that's great <laughs> Well, thank you both so much for for coming in to talk about this. I look forward to the photos and whatnot. I can't get down there. There'll be plenty of photos. (laughs) Next year. Next year. Thanks. (laughs) We've been talking with WLRN Florida Keys reporter Gwen Filosa, and also we've been talking with Fantasy Fest director Nadine Grossman. Or Gwen Nadine, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you so much. Happy Fantasy Fest. Happy Fantasy (laughs) Fest weekend. And that'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It was produced this week by Leslie Ovaya Atkinson. Normally, it's produced by Natu Twe. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news. Christine DiMatte is interim newscast editor. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. The director of radio operations and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mares. Amy Sanchez was answering our phones today. I'm Danny Rivero. Thanks for calling and thanks for listening.
WLRN Public Media.